This is The Squad Room, a podcast that takes you behind the scenes of the 21st season of SVU. If you have not watched episode 2106, Murdered at a Bad Address, we advise you to do so before listening. Hello and welcome back to The Squad Room, episode 2106, Murdered at a Bad Address. I am your host, Anthony Roman, and joining us again on the program is our old friend Peter Scanavino. He digs into the trials and tribulations of being a first-year ADA, and he gives us a bit of insight regarding that justice gene of his. After that, the great Tamara Tooney. That's right, Melinda Warner pops in for a very quick chat. And finally, legendary New York City journalist and the writer of Murdered at a Bad Address, Dennis Hamill, tells us how his years as a newspaper columnist led him to write this incredible episode. All this is happening right here on The Squad Room, which, as always, is brought to you by NBC and Wolf Entertainment. Scanavino, thank you for coming back on The Squad Room. My pleasure, my pleasure. And we hear you want to rename it. Yeah, uh, well, I can't take credit for this. This is uh, Vincent Carthizer, but... um Squadcast. 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 I can't believe nobody thought about that. He said, you should call this the Squadcast. It's like, that's gold. There must have been a reason they passed on Squadcast. Warren Light named it, and I'm not sure Squadcast was in the running. (laughs) Next time he's on, I will ask him. (laughs) So when I talked to you in episode one, you had just left the squad room. Right. A lot has happened to you since then. Yeah. And maybe we could talk about what you think of the development of Carisi's character of um, from you know, episode one to episode six. Yeah, you know, I, I think it's interesting because as um, Carisi has progressed in this job and he's kind of found his footing more, he kind of keeps coming up against a lot of stuff where he realizes that a lot of things are out of his hands. So I think he finds himself in a lot of situations where a plea deal is struck by people above him or around him and he's not able to say no we're not going to do that you know he's kind of at the at the bottom of the totem pole at this point and that happens a few times coming in and i think it's it's starting to get a little frustrating for creasy in that he has an idea of what he wants to pursue how he wants to get justice for these victims but there's all these kind of politics that he has to negotiate and go through and you know backroom deals happening that he's not even privy to um which kind of happens in the first episode too and it kind of keeps happening to him and i think there's a little frustration for him and that he wishes he was maybe calling more of the shots and how to kind of live in that world. So, yeah, I think that's that's where he is. There's a lot of things are changing. He's, he's kind of doing a lot more arraignments and stuff now, but I think maybe he had even envisioned himself, you know, you imagine like the big courtroom thing and, you know. We, which we've yet to see. Which we have yet to see. So that may be coming up in uh, some future episodes. I'm not quite sure. I've been getting hints about that. So are you, are you aware that the fans on Twitter and stuff are calling for that? They want to see you? Yeah, I see that every once in a while, and I, I like that. And, I mean, just personally, I think that that would be so much fun to just get up there and really rip into it. You know what I mean? To kind of even craft that out as an actor and be like, okay, how is this going to go? And what points do I want to hit? And how do I want to illuminate this character in the story and approach it that way? Because right now it's kind of been... You know, he's doing a lot of the legwork and a lot of it's like, I'll take that to my boss. But then also there's kind of a bit of a uh, detective element to it as well, where he's kind of still dealing with the squad 
in some ways that are similar, but also different at the same time. So I think that would be a nice experience for him and would really further develop the character. Do you think they're keeping him out of the courthouse because they want to keep him with the squad as much as possible? No, I think it's, it's honestly, how do you kind of make the fictional world of SVU coexist with the reality of the situation, which is that a first year ADA would be doing all this, this kind of legwork. He would not be given, you know, um, large amounts of responsibility, especially with high profile cases and the nature of our show, every case is in a sense, a high profile case. So it's just how we kind of navigate and get there in a way that's believable and truthful in these fictional circumstances, but also, you know, allows me to kind of interact with the gang. Yeah. Hang with the gang. You know, I mean, I think you can have, you can have both. You can, you know, I think if he's does a big courtroom trial, the trial that doesn't necessarily mean that he's not going to be interacting with uh, the squad. So in episode four, the burden of our choices, you have a heavy scene at the end where yeah. you talk about your mother. And I felt that episode presented everyone's views. Right. In a really nice way. And I wanted to get your feelings about that episode. Um, I thought that was a very good illumination of his perspective because I've always seen Carisi as not kind of a nominal Catholic. He's, you know, he's Catholic. The position, there's several different kind of pro-life or leaning pro-life type positions and they go all over the, the spectrum. And I think there are some people that just want to control somebody else's body, but then there is another side that sees that as a life. And I think he kind of falls in that category, but he also understands that this is an extremely complex issues. And that sometimes I think when he, when he talks about his mother, he sees that as her making the most difficult choice to spare this child, which she views as a child, the suffering that it would have to endure if, you know, as the doctor says, it's only gonna live a couple of days and then die. And then what would be the risk of having this late in age pregnancy, which is, you know, 40, I think she's 45 when she gets pregnant, geriatric pregnancy, what they call it. Um, you know, what's that mean to her other three kids that are constantly, are already there. So, you know, he sees it as the greatest act of compassion and also one that his mother might feel like could put her soul in peril, but she's going to do it because of this love for um, this child that she wants to spare any suffering. So that was one position that I think he could kind of bring up, which is a different position than anybody else has. You know, I think that experience, when he says to the, um, I can't remember his name, the uh, DA from Mercer County, but, you know, he says, we're not so different, you and me. And I think that is the difference in their position is that Creasy has had this experience with it and he knows that this can be incredibly personal and complex decision. Um, but he also says, I believe abortion causes death. So he kind of hits that as well. And Kat kind of comes at him in the squad room. For right. Accusing him of trying to control women. Right. Uh, well, I think she has something like a woman can only be, you know, in charge of her her body when, when she's a victim. And I, I think he, he doesn't buy that argument at all because it goes back to it's a life, you know. He wants to protect a life. You know what I mean? Um, I think he's seeing it in, in a very nuanced way. And at that point, he's conflicted. He's not told anybody. Nobody in the squad knows about this. So it's kind of this private conflict that he has because he might have his own personal view, but then he has this responsibility, which is to uphold the law. And this is the law. And that's what's kind of interesting because if you do have a moral objection to a law, but your job is to uphold the law, then you should say, I'm not going to be ADA or I'm not going to, you know, Kim Davis, the woman who's doing the uh, 
wedding licenses for gay marriage. Said, I'm not going to do it, but you didn't step down from a job. That's the only logical position that you should do. You should step down. If you're not going to uphold the law, then you should not be in charge of upholding the law. So I think he, he understands that and he says, all right, my job is to uphold the law. That's what I'm going to do. And they feel this way might be more complex than what I'm able to say. But when Kat comes at him, he kind of, I think he gets a little angry because he sees what she's doing is a total simplification of the situation and he does not see it that way. But he also is not going to give her, you know, let me explain how I feel about this because she's new to the squad. He doesn't feel like he owes her an explanation for his point of view. Right. As an actor, do you like tension in the squadron? Is yeah. You know, I think if there could be tension, that's great because it makes, you know, a lot of those kind of scenes which can, which can be just exposition. A lot of times if there's, the actors actually have a point, a view on what they're saying or the information that they're, they're um, relating to each other. It just gives it a little extra zing and, and zip. And anytime you get to kind of show a character's point of view on something, it's good. In episode five, Midnight Manhattan, you're really kind of thrown into your job and you have a lot of things happening and you're kind of running around almost, right. almost like with a chicken without a head. <laughs> uh, I was just thinking, what do you think about that episode and where was Carisi in that one? In this one, he's, um, you know, again, he's got these cases where there's a problem in each case and that a witness is not cooperating or the, the suspect is, you know, a lawyer himself and the case is already on kind of shaky ground and it's just one thing after the other and everybody's kind of pulling him this way and that way and you've got to get this right. He feels the pressure of his job because he's also at that point where he needs to make this case and present it in a way where they can uh, have an indictment. So he needs to get that ready for the arraignment where it doesn't just get thrown out by the, the judge. So he's trying to get all those ducks in a row. And as soon as he thinks he has it, something falls out and something falls, you know, goes this way. It's like, okay, now I got to fix that. And then another thing goes the other way. It's like, oh, Jesus, you know? So um, there's a lot of activity in that and a lot of kind of stress, which I think is a lot of what it is to be first year ADA. It's a lot of stress, a lot of expectations, and nobody cares about how much you have on your plate. You just have to... Um, to get it done. And I think that's what kind of um, filters who's going to stay in the office and, and who's not. You know, I, I bet there's a, a lot of people to drop out in that first year. Is playing Carisi in this role harder for you? In some ways, it's easier because it's newer and there are scenes that are, you know, kind of brand new in a way to me. So I guess just as, as an actor, it's just right off the bat kind of more, oh, I haven't done this before. I haven't even done a version of this, you know, as opposed to as a detective sometimes scenes can be very similar, you know? So I think just as an actor, it seems easier to play, but maybe as, a, as, a, as the character, that might be more difficult in a way. And Hadi is really tough. Do you, is there is there going to be a point where you guys start to see eye, eye to eye? Or? Uh, <laughs> not, not, not that you've seen. <laughs> not that I've seen so far. Um, you know, I think it kind of, it even just gets more kind of ambiguous where... Carisi doesn't know if he can trust her. You know, there's the, um, an episode that comes up, maybe it's seven, where he just point blank asks her, like, did you know this was going to happen? Um, he doesn't know how to feel about her, but she's still his boss. I don't think he thinks she's, she's, you know, evil or corrupt, but I also don't know if he's 100% sure that this is somebody that he can trust with everything. So the relationship's a little more complicated than just boss picking on the new guy, you think? Yeah. I think so, because I think her world is 
infinitely more complex and crazy can even imagine because if he's dealing with this on his small scale, she's dealing with that amplified with her higher ups and their higher ups. And it's all, you know, shit rolls downhill like most things. So she's getting it and then he's getting, you know, what she's passing on to him. And it's, you know, just one of those things, I suppose. Uh, speaking of complicated relationships, you have a pretty big fight with Rollins in the squad room right. in, in episode five <laughs> that kind of comes out of nowhere. Um, I would be fine if you were right here beside me, she says. Yeah. So what did you make of that? <laughs> I, I kind of always saw it as, you know, we have this fight, but I felt like she was just kind of yelling at me and of, of all times that bring this up to me when I'm already kind of scrambling for this because I thought we had parted on, not parted, but that she was happy for me and this is kind of the first real hint that you get that she feels maybe slightly betrayed by my move um, over to this office and that might be a blending of the personal and the professional because I think they do have kind of a complicated relationship, you know, where they used to be there for each other on a daily basis and support each other and, and now... It's not the same. But, I mean, that line in particular seems more than just like, you know, a working relationship. There seemed to be something behind that. Yeah. At I least, mean, I mean, in her portrayal, you know. Right. The, I would be fine if you were with yeah, her. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, maybe. I think even when those lines happen in, in, in the moment, in real life, I'm like, what does that mean? And maybe, you know, he goes off and he thinks about that. Um you know, I think that that relationship is is fraught and that can mean several different things. So moving on to episode six, you have a unique role in this episode because you're in pursuit of justice for a wrongfully incarcerated individual. Right. And we want to talk about the justice gene that you have. Right. Um, I felt like Carisi's always had a very clearly defined sense of right and wrong or even say that a different way, what's just and what's injust. And I think if something is an injustice or he perceives it as so, it really sticks in his craw. It's something that he kind of can get obsessed about. So in that episode, um, when Carlos Hernandez, you know, he learns, starts learning more about the case and it becomes pretty clear that this guy did not commit this crime. Um, it kind of becomes this crusade for Creasy that I've got to get him out. And he starts putting himself out on a ledge and pulling every string that he possibly can to do so. Um, because he has that justice gene, which I think is what led him into the, the, the DA's office. Well, I want to tell, like, because you go to Holmes, you go to King, like, you're really trying. And uh, I thought there was maybe points where you, people would give up, but you don't, you don't seem to have any of that. Like, you hit a lot. The, Keen has dementia. He's kind of talking right. about Keith Hernandez. You could say, like, this isn't going to work. Home, you kind of get it on a fluke, but, you, but yeah. it's your persistence that really actually makes it happen. Right. Well, because I, I think he'd be the kind of character that would go home. It's just when something doesn't sit right, he can't just be like, well, that didn't work out and off we go. Like he would go home and think about it. I bet he would be in bed at night like this is an injustice. I have to do everything that I possibly can to rectify this. And until that's done, until I can say that I've done everything that I possibly can to do this, I don't think he would have a, a moment's peace. So I, that's kind of the driving force in that for him. Um, you know, I think he's also a very empathetic character in which, you know, just to imagine having, you know, I can't remember how long it was, but it's like 16, 16, years, years. 16 yeah. years of your life taken from you for something that you didn't do. And also to be accused of such a horrific crime, killing your mother and your sister. Um, 
you know, it's when he's convinced he's off to the races that this this was a frame up, you know, he goes for it. When you're the lead character in an episode like you for that one, which you are, do you is there more communication with the writer? Is there more communication with the Warren and the Dennis, or is it kind of even to well, I mean, it all it all depends if you can sit down with every scene and go, yes, I clearly know how I got here and why I'm acting this way in this scene. And I know what came before it. And that logically leads me to act this way. And, you know, there's nothing that you don't get when it's all logically connected. Then it's kind of great because you can just dig right in and, and go for it. And usually, you know, that's when a script really resonates, when you can just see how it all plays out, where all the beats are there for you and you don't have to question. Yeah. I was saying prior to the interview that I thought you were funny in places. Are you wary of ever lightening the mood? No, I mean, I think it gets so dark that wherever you can put a bit of levity or, because I think that's how characters are or people are in real life. They crack jokes quickly and then back into it. You know what I mean? And I think that's just kind of how his personality can be at times, you know, where you can kind of step outside of the situation, comment on it, and then step back into the circumstances. So I'm not really super conscious of it when, when I do it, but I'm glad that it, it comes out that way sometimes. Because I even thought, like, you always do these baseball references, and then I thought you were talk, trying to talk to Keen, and he, he's like, oh, Shea Stadium, Keith, right. he thinks Carlos Hernandez is Keith Hernandez and stuff. Yeah. And I know it's not, dementia's not funny. Right, right. So, no, that was kind of a, that was kind of a, um, not a difficult scene to play, but th there definitely was some humor in that and just even kind of the gentleness and the patience that, that you show and then trying to get this thing done and also the perceiving that this person isn't all entirely there, but at the same time not being like, oh, this guy's, you know, crazy. Like clearly dementia's not funny and it's, you know, just watching that Larry Bergman was so amazing in it, in, in that scene. You know, my heart really went out to him. Um, I almost feel like you're hitting extremes a little more than maybe like, because you are making me laugh and you are having maybe some of the more emotional, deeper scenes that you, this season. So oh, good. I don't know if that's you <laughs> or, or the, everybody or the writing, but I, I, I feel think like it's the, probably everybody. The range is uh, increasing. And Wentworth Miller, um, just want to talk if you liked what about working with him and just like what you guys were you and Holmes were doing to get Carlos out. And yeah, I mean, I really, I really liked uh, Wentworth. When you first meet him, he's very quiet. He's very thoughtful, you know. And I was like, oh, we're gonna get along. But we had a day where we just we had scenes together all day. I think we shot all of, all of his scenes in, in one, one day. day yeah. So it was like all of that. And then by the end, you know, we were totally cracking jokes and making each other laugh. And I just thought he was a great, great guy, great actor, just wonderful to work with. What's it been like this season to go from taking orders from Benson to kind of now you're advising Benson um, how to pursue an investigation? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think you can play the, uh, wow, these are different circumstances. It's strange. But at some point, you just got to jump into it and, and say, this is my new part. This is my new job as you would as the, as that actual character. I mean, I, this is what I have to do. This is part of my job. I need you to make the case. This is, um, you know, what I need. This isn't good enough for me to, to get a warrant, you know? So you just kind of got to jump into it. And at first it might've been kind of jarring to me and, and probably Mariska too, or Benson and Carisi. Um, but now I think we've kind of hit like, 
our stride where I think she also realizes that I'm just trying to do my job and that I have a job to do. And it's not personal sometimes where some of the other members of the squad, you know, might kind of give me a sideways glance or say, what's going on with Creasy White? You know, oh, he's changed. And, you know, she, I think she sticks up for me. You come on for a three episode arc and I spoke to Ice last week and he was on for four episodes and then he saw him been on for 20 years and you're still here for all this time. What do you make of all that? I mean, did, did I, you? It's, it's so crazy. Yeah, you know, to come on, I think they, was, they said three episodes, possibly more. It's funny, I was so, I was so prepared for my first episode. <laughs> I still remember all of my lines from my first you episode. Still do. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, my big speech, which I did on my first day, um, you know, and I just kept like telling myself, don't mess up. You know, because I felt like it was an opportunity. It felt like a character that could do something more. And as they gave me more and more episodes, you know, you get more and more comfortable in it. Now this is my sixth season. It's just wild. Like I'm a, a part of this world, this universe, and I'm a series regular on this show. Like I, I still kind of can't believe it. It's still strange to me, you know, when somebody comes up to me. How, how often little, does so, how often are you? Rec- I mean, Law and Order people are recognized all the time, right? You, yeah, you know, if you I go mean, out right now, someone's gonna. Um, I mean, not not everybody. Every from, trip out from time to around. time, you know, and everybody's always extremely respectful with me, and um, I think it's because I'm not, you know, I'm recognizable from the show, but they don't necessarily know my name. I'm not like this star or anything, so they're just kind of like, hey, like they tell me they like my character, and you know, maybe want to take a picture. But if I'm with my kids, they, you know, people usually. Um, very respectful. So it's it's always nice too. Everybody greets you with a smile. That's the best part. You know, it, it, it's it's like you go to um, you know a, a deli or whatever, and most people are like oh whatever. It's this much four fifty. Like, oh hey you oh you know you see them perk up, and it's just kind of nice to be greeted like that. You kind of wish everybody could be. <laughs> well, Peter Scanavino, thank you for coming on again. Yeah, you're, you're thank our you. first uh, part of the cast who's come on twice. All right. We appreciate that. That's what I like to hear. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you. So we were all surprised to see Tamara Tooney return as medical examiner Melinda Warner in episode six. And we were even more surprised to see her in the squad room. I was happy to have a quick chat with Tamara. Tamara Tooney, thank you for coming in. Thanks for having me. So you've been with SVU since 2000, and you've been in 223 episodes. Have I? (laughs) Wow. According to my research. (laughs) Fantastic. How has the show and the cases changed in those 20 years? Well, you know, the beautiful thing about SVU is uh, a lot of the subject matter is ripped from the headlines. So life is often stranger and sometimes more horrific than fiction. So our writers have been able to really pull from current events and keep up with the times as far as the topics are concerned. So I think, uh, you know, as each year goes by, the shows change and evolve with it. So in some ways, you've been able to kind of facilitate a cultural movement about DNA testing. Mm. Showing that our bodies contain stories we can't see. Mm -hmm. Were there any episodes that you were amazed by the kinds of discoveries that DNA can reveal? Well, I think with each episode, I was amazed. Um, The science that 
Neil Bear brought to the show when he he was a showrunner. Um, you know, he's a doctor, and so he brought a lot of science to the show. And I learned a great deal. Mitochondrial DNA and the difference between. And it was always very fascinating for me. Um, but what I'm most proud of about this show, and Marishka has been very much an advocate for this, is the backlog rape rape kits that had been sitting on shelves and finally they're getting some attention and people are getting the justice they deserve. So you come back for this episode and you have to give Benson some unbearable news about Simon. Right. What did it feel like to do that? It was a very emotional scene, but what I found amusing is that there was no explanation for my absence for the past two and a half years. (laughs) You know, and I thought someone would say, you know, how was DC? (laughs) Did you like working with the Obama administration? Something, you know what I mean? But no, no, it was just, there's Warner. She's there. She's there for Benson to deliver this heartbreaking news. So, you know, and it was just great. I mean, it's great to be back um, in the morgue. It was great to be back with Marishka. And fortunately, our characters have always had kind of a, a special kind of bond. That's why Warren thought it was important to help Benson through that process of her brother having OD'd. So question four, where have you been? We don't know. There is no answer. There is no answer. Apparently, I've just been perhaps in another part of the morgue. (laughs) Um, So you make technical jargon fun. How do you do that? (laughs) (laughs) Because technical jargon is fun. I mean, when I was a kid, you know, all through school and stuff, I was a very um, science and math kid growing up. So playing this role and particularly... I think that Neil and the writers would find the most difficult words they could possibly (laughs) find to see if I could pull it off. And, you know, I love a good challenge. So I had my Stedman's Medical Dictionary and I, you know, had the Internet so I could figure out how to um, say these terms. And it's so interesting because a lot of people, a lot of fans, they ask me if I know what I'm talking about. And I'm like, well, yeah, I know what I'm talking about because I have to research it in order to deliver it in a convincing way. Right. But there were a lot of um, tricky, you know, tongue twister things that it was fun to do. It was just a lot of fun to do. I was watching an old episode called Criminal Stories, and you're telling her some information, and she goes, are you sure? And you say, you always ask me that. <laughs> yes. I, um, Warner had issues with um, Kelly's character because she was always kind of questioning and, and um, challenging, you know, Warner. And Warner knows everything. So, you know, she, she didn't take it too kindly. That no, I was this, wondering if that this little upstart, would return. This little upstart from the South is, you know, coming in questioning her. So it was good. It was fun. So, well, Tamara Tooney, thank you for coming on the squad room, and it's good to see you back. Thank you so much. Dennis Hamill is the co-writer of Murdered at a Bad Address and someone I have admired for a long time. When I heard he was joining the SVU writing staff, I knew it was a great decision, and I was really happy to have the opportunity to speak with him. Here's our talk. Dennis Hamill, thank you for coming on to the Squad Room. Thanks for having me. And we're going to talk about your episode, 2106, Murdered at a Bad Address. And I wanted to know how you feel your experiences before you were a TV writer brought you here. Well, I started my career, obviously, as a journalist about 40 years ago. I started in a little newspaper in Brooklyn called Flatbush Life. Um, I covered um, crime and politics and courts and 
everything that you could think about in the city, the bureaucracy and um, machine politics. So when I met Warren Light a couple of years ago, we hit it off because he's such a dyed-in-the-wool New Yorker. You know, I mean, he, this is a guy that's ridden his bicycle th- up and down almost every single street in the borough of Manhattan. He grew up in, in places like Sunnyside, Queens, where... So he has a real sense of the town. And we hit it off. We just liked each other. We were tooling around with a couple of ideas. And when he got the offer to come back to SVU, he asked me if I would be interested in coming in as a, as a writer in the writer's room. And I said, absolutely. Here I am. The idea of justice and just and regular people plays into your episode here. And I want to talk about where you came up with the original idea for this. You know, over the years, I've probably covered four or five stories of people who have been falsely incarcerated. Even before DNA, there was a, a guy in Brooklyn named Bobby McLaughlin who was on death row for a crime he didn't commit. I did that one for the Village Voice. And there were several other ones. I did one about a guy who did nine years in the can for a crime that his brother committed, even though his brother came into the courtroom and said, no, you have the wrong brother. I did it. They threw him out of the courtroom and sent the other guy to jail. And he was like a promising prize fighter. Um, There's been other guys that have been like accused of uh, murder and spent, you know, decades in jail. I've interviewed them over the years. And what was most fascinating about those people was their readjustment back into the real world. Guys that couldn't believe that they were able to hold their own keys or had to learn how to use a cell phone or eat whenever they were hungry or eat whatever they wanted. And I wanted to do an episode about a character like that. But Carlos has reasons in a way that he's in jail for a crime he did not commit. One of the things that I had interviewed a couple of different people that that, uh, had gone to jail in their lifetime and and were afraid to admit that they were gay. They were in a closet in a cell, which is the craziest kind of confinement because your life is a performance behind bars, you know, because you were afraid of being turned in what's, into what's called in jailhouse uh, vernacular, a Maytag, that you become like a washerwoman and you're in charge of uh, washing other people's clothes and performing other kinds of duties that would mean that you would be raped and passed around and usually wind up with HIV or or full-blown AIDS and die from it. So this idea that a young girl is a victim of sexual assault, which eventually leads to Carlos being freed, is that something that you connected the dots on or was it? Well, that's not an actual case, but the details in it are an amalgam of different cases and some of it is just fictional uh, storytelling. But watching people actually being marched out into court in chains in this kind of stutter walk where they're always being marched around with uh, leg irons so that when even when they take the leg irons off, they do a kind of stutter walk too. And I found that to be the oddest detail. It was the ultimate image of institutionalization for these people. They've been institutionalized and they even affects the, the way they walk. Even when the chains are taken off, they're still imprisoned. I wanted a guy like that to be able to get out, not just come out of jail, but come out of the closet. You know, he was able, he was finally free. How do you just present this to Warren and Julie, and how do you get from the teaser to the end of the story? Well, it's amazing. They're two amazing people. I, you know, I said, you know, there's something about a wrongfully imprisoned person that we should really do, or somebody who's in the closet in, in a cell. 
and Warren picks up on it right away. So and they always like to start it in one way and have that lead you into something else. And I mean, it's a learning experience for me because they're both amazing writers on their own. So when you present them with something and you start plotting it with them, the plotting sessions are, are really kind of electric. The, the story starts to form in front of you. I've collaborated before. My brother John and I have written a couple of movies together, but in a television show where there's pre-existing characters, these cops that I've been watching on television for 20 years, now part of my story, which is a weird kind of thing. It's fun, you know? I mean, And so you take this story, the bones of the story, and then you fit it into the template of SVU, and it takes on a life of its own. And then now the character that is fictional, you know, starts telling you the story. And then you say, and what would he do next? Because Warren has this wonderful approach where you tell the story from the character's point of view. None of the scenes in SVU are ever told unless one of our cops are in it, except for the teaser. That's the only time we break point of view. But the rest of it is all told from the point of view of our SVU team. So it's how they learn it, and that's how the viewer learns it. And so it starts to open up in a different way. You're looking at it from four different points of view. From the, from Did the you team. realize that before you became no, a writer? No, I on didn't. The show? Of course, I made mistakes like that all the way. Warren and Warren had to take me back and say, no, you're breaking point of view. And I said, well, we do it in the teaser. He said, yeah, that's the only place we do it. So I had to, you know, had to learn that. But that took a couple of weeks. And then we had amazing sessions with people that came in and lectured us and stuff on sexual trauma and the law. I brought in defense attorneys that I know, and some of whom were prosecutors too. And Carisi was interested in meeting those people because he, he, he learned a lot from specifically one of them, a guy named Steve Murphy, who's a great criminal attorney, that, uh, and another guy that I've known for years named Phil Smallman, who got a couple of wrongfully convicted uh, people out of jail. So that was interesting. But to watch Warren and Julie take my first draft and then showed me how to make it better and how to tighten it because it's all about pacing in SVU. So, and I've been picking it up pretty quickly. When you present an idea like that, is it in your mind that Carisi's going to lead that episode? Actually, in the first one, it was Warren. He said, that's a great one for Carisi, especially as a young, new young prosecutor because he's seen it already. I mean, he's, you know, it's part of his DNA. It's the way, like when I moved into the projects and lived in the projects for a while, you know, I would always tell people, including Warren, said, you know, it becomes part of your DNA. That's why there's a line in that show where Cat yeah. says, you know, uh, Finn says, you're a, pro- you're a former projects kid. She said, yeah, Gowanus, but there's no such thing as a former projects kid. I mean, it stays with you forever. So he has, he has this show in his DNA and he sees it. So it's Julie. They see it from that point of view, just instinctively. They just can see if who's the right character, which one of the people would say what, and who would be in that particular interrogation or interview. And I learned it really quickly. I didn't have their voices down right in the beginning. And they would say, no, that's not something Benson would say. That's something Finn would say, or, you know. And you get to learn it. And then I watched, you know, scores of them. I must have watched uh, half of the episodes because I became addicted to it. I'd watched it over the years, but now I was studying it. And it was That's why, yeah. a, lot, a lot of fun. Why did you kill Simon? It's such an emotional episode. And we were setting one person free and hopefully putting another serial rapist, uh, you know, who's gotten away with it all this time. And it was Warren who, and Julie who thought that there needed to be some kind of an emotional storyline, uh, subplot about what, what's going on in Benson's life at the same time. 
And one of the scourges of the city now and and the world is fentanyl and opioids and all of that. And um, it was mostly Warren at that point who thought that it just needed a, a, a balance, something personal happening to her while she's also working on this on this case too. And I, I thought it was a really nice counterbalance too. In the end, you have one guy that gets free, and it's a sort of bittersweet ending because it ends in, in a graveyard with him finally getting to mourn for his mother and, uh, and, and, his, and his sister, which he couldn't do in a jail cell because he was accused of their murders. And then you have Benson, who was estranged from her brother, her only living relative, and then when he dies, she finds out how much she loved him too. And, you know, so there's that really nice kind of matching scene with that. So it had a nice symmetry. What is the line, I wouldn't eat a donut if it was blessed by the Pope and the Dalai Lama mean? <laughs> well, we wanted to make Cat a completely different kind of cop than the average donut chomping uh, flat foot that you see that, you know, the cliche. And she's kind of a, a health nut. She's the one that can still chase a bad guy across her rooftop. And so I see her as someone who's not, you know, going to go to... Uh, Krispy Kreme, she's going to go more for, you know, uh, avocado toast or something, you know. And <laughs> not that she's a, a, a hipster, but she's certainly a, a new young detective. And, uh, and wanted to see the world from from the perspective of a, of a new young person who drinks coconut milk instead of, you know, uh, coffee all day long, you know. Coconut water, I mean. And as far as, the, you know, I grew up in Valley Stream, which, do you know where that is? Yeah, sure. Um, and... When I was a kid, we never went to the Rockaways. We always went the other way to Long Beach or Jones Beach because the Rockaways was not safe. Or... Right. I'm interested in why you set the episode there. And... Well, I just think that Far Rockaway is one of those places that's kind of forgotten. And it's literally people living with their backs to the sea. And it's where a crime like that could happen and not injustice would never be revisited until you get a guy like Carisi who digs his teeth into it. And he has a justice gene. I see Carisi as wanting to become a lawyer, not to become rich and famous, but because he believes in justice. I think he was that kind of a cop. And I think he'd be that kind of a prosecutor who's not just doesn't want just wins. Of course, he wants to win when he thinks the guy is guilty. But when he finds out there's a guy that's really innocent, and he can't get him out of the can. It drives him insane, you know. And he's he's like a dog with a bone on it. And there's not too many people who would do something like that. And if for somebody that comes from a place like Far Rock, you know, yeah, you knew he wouldn't. He wasn't going to give up. So yes, and he has that kind of tenacity that I I love the character. I think it's it was a great idea of Warren's and Julie's to, you know, make him yeah. fill that spot. I mean, literally slide over from the squad, and still he's still you know, and affiliated with the show and as much, if not more than. It also does a nice thing with his relationship with Rollins. Oh, yeah, it's Because it separates them, and because of that, you could see... And they, they keep they on coming back together. Exactly. But they, but they have... And, and, that, and they bang heads on sometimes. Yeah. Because he has to... He has a different boss than she does now, so he has a different set of needs and different set of politics that he has to follow. And it's just some, there's some really great character stuff going on between them. And I still think in stories like SVU, we need to, they need to be gritty and real. And we want real voices. Warren will say to me, well, you, you probably met somebody like that. And I would say, yeah. And it, what would they say? What would they do? So we try to get real situations and give them the verisimilitude of, of the real city of New York. It's all out there. And I just think the stories are infinite. Still are. We haven't gotten to anywhere near the end yet. 
Good. Well, Dennis Hamill, thank you for coming on Squad Room today. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. So that's a wrap for the Squad Room. Next week, Jamie Gray Hyder and Margaret Cho. Come by and hang out. It is going to be a great one. As always, we want to hear from you. We love hearing from you. Please connect with us on Instagram at NBCSVU and Wolf Entertainment and on Twitter at NBCSVU and Wolf N. The Squad Room is hosted and produced by me, Anthony Roman. It is executive produced by Elliot Wolf and Warren Light. We will see you next week. 